Please open your Bibles now to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 20 as we do continue a message from last Sunday uh, regarding Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And today we're going to look at the charge Paul gave the leadership of the church in Ephesus. So our reading um, will begin at verse 28. Paul again addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus. Hear now the word of the living God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you by working hard in this way. Um, that we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. It is the index of reality, it is the truth, and everything that disagrees with it is a lie. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and that the Holy Spirit enables us in all ways to discern uh, the truth of God as is, it is preached to us. We pray today that our hearts would be fertile soil to receive the seed of the word, the engrafted word that is able to give us life and hope and salvation through the ministry of your spirit. We pray that you would be honored and lifted up and glorified as we spend this time together and may it be a blessing not only to us, but may it be a pleasure to you because it is your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we know from this chapter that Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So on his way to catch a boat, a ship, over to uh, visit in Jerusalem, he stops by about 30 miles away from Ephesus. He doesn't go into the city of Ephesus where he had spent three years doing significant ministry. 
uh, teaching these people the whole counsel of the Word of God, uh, pastorally overseeing and caring for the flock. Uh, we know that Paul was much beloved there and that he suffered many, many things. But he's in a hurry to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, which is seven weeks from Passover, where he had already celebrated that in Philippi. And the reason why he was so passionate about getting to Jerusalem was he wanted to bring the offering, basically Gentile offering, from Macedonia, Achaia, and uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, where Ephesus is, to Jerusalem to present it to the church in Jerusalem, which was suffering severely uh, by the Jewish resistance to the gospel and where people had been kicked out of jobs and homes and disowned and abandoned. Uh, he knew they were very needy, and one of the great marks of redemption is reconciliation and how it had turned these Gentile hearts from being haters of Israel and Jews to now wanting to give to comfort and help. And so that's what's going on here. But we catch up with ourselves now in chapter 20 and verse 28, which is probably one of the most important sections in the book of Acts. And we're going to take our time as we go through these verses to the end of the chapter. Verse 28 itself is often described as both the practical and the theological center of Paul's speech at Ephesus. It's practical because Paul's primary intention with this farewell speech is to urge the Ephesian elders to do their ministry effectively, that is their ministry of shepherding. And the theological center in verse 28 is important because here in only in Acts is there an attempt to state the significance of the death of Christ and at the same time bring out the ground of the church church's ministry in the work of the Holy Spirit. We have a splendid Trinitarian reference here that makes clear that the church belongs to God and is fundamentally in his care. He is the great shepherd. However, it doesn't negate human responsibility. In terms of human responsibility, Paul was concerned about what might happen to the congregations at Ephesus, and in view of his imminent departure, and also anticipating never coming back, he charges the elders with a very solemn responsibility. Now, before I go any further with the charge, I want to help you understand some of the words Paul uses here that are very important to the text. But before I get there, I, I want to say this. The first thing he tells the elders to do is to keep watch over yourselves. If you are a, an elder in a PCA church, your first ministry responsibility is to shepherd your own heart. You cannot shepherd others if you're not shepherding your own heart. One of my favorite writers who I often joke and say uh, to sum up what Paul Tripp may say about anything is the worst person in the world you have to deal with is you. The problem with everything is you. And he's written a book called Dangerous Calling, which I've read twice, having to do 
primarily with teaching elders and our need to shepherd our own heart, our need to maintain our devotional life, our need to continue to practice use of the means of, God, of grace that God has given us. But he tells us that pastors and elders have become uh, uh, what all of us have the tendency in our sin to become, our very skilled self-swindlers. What does he mean by that? Well, here's how it works. If you aren't daily admitting to yourself that you're a mess, and in daily and rather desperate need for forgiving and transforming grace, and if the evidence around has not caused you to abandon your confidence in your own righteousness, then you are going to give yourself to the work of convincing yourself that you're okay. How do you do that? Well, you point to the ample evidence the fallen world gives you that the people and situations around you are flawed and broken and are therefore the reason you respond to life the way you do. You tell yourself again and again that you're not the problem, that it is they are, but it's never you. It's never you who is the problem. And you tell yourself that you don't really need change. It's the people and circumstances around you. That's what needs to change. What you are doing, although you're probably not aware of it at the time, is building an elaborate, seemingly logical argument for your own righteousness. Boy, that's a powerful statement. And it's so very true. Daily, you defend it to yourself and find ways to uh, parade it before others. Rather than casting yourself on the mercy of your one true Savior, you're acting as if you're your own Savior, building atoning arguments for the rightfulness of what God clearly says is wrong. You deny evidence. You defend your righteousness. You resist the grace of God. No wonder things worsen until they finally come to a tipping point. I know this evidence-denying pattern. I got my master's degree in it. The problem was that I was a pastor and I had no sense of the fact at the very time I was holding the one beautiful Savior before others, I was working hard to be my own Savior. Now the book goes on and on. But the help of the book is it gets you to see that you cannot effectively minister to others if you don't know how to preach the gospel of grace to yourself. If you don't know how to dig deep in roots down into Jesus Christ. And so the first admonition he gives to the elders at Ephesus is shepherd your own heart. Shepherd your own heart. You have to do that before you're even on the way to shepherding others. And so he gives the elders a, re a solemn responsibility to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We believe that God calls, in this case, men to be elders uh, through the Holy Spirit Men who are gifted for the task, who have the Christian character and the gifting to do so, we find that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But the focus here is on the Holy Spirit. Christian leaders cannot adequately care for anyone if they neglect the care and nurture of their own souls. What is the state of your soul? Do you care for your soul? Do you feed yourself God's Word? Do you submit yourself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit consistently? 
Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you? And pray often? Or do you rely upon your own abilities and gifting to get you by? We have to be proactive. We have to be intentional about our own soul care before we're able to lead and direct and protect and feed others. And so Paul makes that clear. He talks about the need of that. The echoes of Old Testament passages that express the need for the leaders of Israel to pastor God's flock is a way that reflects his own shepherding care. We see that in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even Zechariah. The title overseers that Paul uses in this text is the word episkopoi, from which we get the word episcopal. And episcopoi is really not that hard of a word if you break it down. It's epi, which means over, and it's scope, which means to look, to see, to visit, to concentrate upon. And so elders, this is a function of elders. It's not an actual office in the church as much as it is a function we are called to oversee, to care, to look to, with watchfulness and concern those under our charge. That was the function of elders. Elders is the Greek word presbyteroi. Guess what comes from that word? The name of the church, Presbyterian. Presbyterian simply means elder rule. It is the rule of elders in the leadership of the church. And then he talks about shepherds, which is the Greek word poi which is the idea of shepherding, of watching and taking care of the flock. And so the Holy Spirit appointed overseers, and they are like the elders chosen by Moses, but empowered by God's Spirit as prophetic leaders of Israel. Doubtless, the Ephesian elders were appointed by Paul because of their character and their gifting. But the focus here is on the Spirit's work in choosing and preparing by His gifts those who are to be His ministers. Now there's something interesting here. Although this is not the definitive place in the Bible where church government is established, you can't talk about church government without looking at it. And the idea is, in the Bible, in terms of church government, it's not a pyramid with one person at the top. It's not a one-man band, rather it's an orchestra. It is a plurality of leadership and authority over the church. And God has provided that, and as someone who has been a Baptist pastor for 13 years before I became a Presbyterian pastor for the next 40, it's been wonderful in having elders. Uh, I cannot tell you the difference it makes and the, the great help it is to me to have other people in the boat rowing with me. Other people sometimes challenging me, sometimes correcting me. But there is no apex of the pyramid. There is no one guy at the top. The Bible knows nothing of that. Why? Because we don't even know our own hearts. We can deceive ourselves. Please be careful about one charismatic leader who's very gifted and, and very well-spoken and very intelligent, but having all the power vested in one person. That is scary. What I know now 
about the heart of man and the effects of the fall is we all need accountability. We all need checks and balances upon ourselves, And that's the way Paul uh, started the church in Ephesus. And so it is to care for all the flocks, all of the flock, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, that results from the preaching of the gospel. And so we're to be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now understand something. You need to come to Mark Anderson's Sunday school class next Sunday. He will do a much more detailed definition and description than I'm about to do right now. But God is a spirit who doesn't have a body. Therefore, God has no blood. So who is the blood? that the church was bought with. Well, it's the human nature of Christ united with the divine nature of Christ. It's fine to call it the blood of God, but it comes from the human nature, which is forever united to the divine nature. Two natures, one person, Jesus Christ, shed his blood, bought the church, but rather than to get mired in that, I'll let Mark clear all of that up for you later, rather than to get mired in that at the present, what I would say is, you've been bought with a price. If you are a Christian, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid for you. He has bought you. He has redeemed you. Therefore, glorify Him in your body which is his. He has purchased us. In the Old Testament, God called Israel, the ones he redeemed out of Egypt, his, the Hebrew word, segula. And segula, I got fascinated by that word, and I said, well, what does that word mean? Segula, segula in Hebrew means my precious possession. That which is, uh, what would... Uh, the guy on Lord of the Rings call it, my pretty, my precious. I don't know why I thought of that. Let's forget that. But we are precious to him. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, Peter tells us, but by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. And so elders, and I'm listening to my own preaching here, what am I saying? I am saying this. When you minister and oversee the flock of God, you remember along with me that they are the blood-bought children of God. They are precious to Him. Sometimes in our calling as leaders in the church, we can get calloused about things. Or we can be in a bad mood about things. Or we can be abrupt with people. Or we can sin against people in various ways. But one of the things Paul wanted these people to remember is how precious the church is. That's why I don't want to hear people diss church. People diss church all the time, thinking that they got a better idea. Well, people have been dissing church ever since there's been one. And the church belongs to Christ. It is his body. It is his bride. Do you understand that? There is no closer connection we can have than the one we do in Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't listen faster, we're going to have part three of this sermon. So we're to shepherd the church, which he has bought with his own blood. 
The watchfulness was for the express purpose here of pastoral care, effective pastoral care. The community entrusted to the care is also called the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. But there is a powerful rhetorical force in recognizing the immediate reference here to the Ephesian congregation. Each congregation which is brought into existence because of the saving work of Jesus Christ is precious to God and should be treated by those appointed to be leaders as precious. Now, it's important as we go forward in this text to see that um, the people, uh, again, are blood-bought, but there's even something more here. Paul writes about the blood of Christ as the means of divine redemption in Romans chapter 3 where he speaks of Christ as propitiating the Father through the sacrifice of his blood as a means of redemption. The, the specifically covenantal language employed in chapter 20 verse 28, bought, um, and the word sanctified reminds us of Luke's record of Jesus' last supper with his disciples wherein he grounds the new covenant in his own death and blood. In Acts 20, as in Jesus' discourse in the upper room, the shedding of Messiah's blood is the means by which the new covenant is inaugurated and Messiah's people are sanctified for their share with him in his eternal inheritance. This is the heart of his message of grace to these people, uh, which is able to sustain the church in the face of persecution and false teaching. In other words, Jesus' atoning work in both Luke 22 and Acts 20 is not simply the basis for the proclamation of the forgiveness, but also for forming and maintaining the people of God. The reason why elders needed to keep watch over themselves and the flock committed to their care, Paul makes plain in verses 29 to 31. After Paul's departure... There would be threats to the life and growth of the church, both from outside and inside. Paul had predicted that savage wolves would come into their fellowship among you and would not spare the flock. False teachers would pursue their own ends and not care about what happened to Christ's people. Even more insidiously, Destruction would come from within the church, even from among your own num number. The last expression suggests that heresy and schism might be caused by one or the other of the elders themselves, who would distort truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Very important that the church and the elders keep watch not only over the church, but themselves, and are teachable and correctable. Thank God, in the PCA and other Reformed churches, we have documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we are required to subscribe to, not like the Bible, but as a secondary document containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Bible. So we have a way of holding each other accountable to doctrine. 
I love that about our denomination, and I love that about being a Presbyterian, because if, if I go off on some jag or, or, or ride a hobby horse or venture into heresy, it is the responsibility of the elders to this church to confront me in a loving, gentle, warm, hugging way. Sometimes they may need to get up in my face and say, Tim, Tim, think about what you're talking about. Think about what you're saying. I got problems with this. And so it's, it's built into the system to do that, and we have to watch. The church at Ephesus had to deal with heretical forces after Paul's departure. We know this in Revelation where uh, Jesus addresses the church at Ephesians that they had left their first love. And we do know that the church of Ephesus around the second century was no longer. But after that, it had a revival and resurrection and became a church again later on in church history. But you have to watch out for the wolves, the savage wolves. Uh, pastors need to be realistic about the way sin can manifest itself in distortions of the truth and create destructive divisions among Christians. Paul's solution was for the elders to watch out for themselves, be on your guard. In particular, they were to remember, that is continually remember, the pattern of his own ministry. A similar ministry of warning with sincerity and compassion would be critical to the care and the support of this church. From Paul's letters, it clear, it's clear that such admonition, instructing the mind so that Christians might think and act appropriately, is found in almost all of his letters. Admonition as a form of spiritual counseling is also the task of the whole church towards one another. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, teaching one another. And so, it's the spiritually fit thing to do as the church. Now, as we continue, let's look at Paul's grounds for confidence just for a moment. The preceding warners implies that the elders couldn't even rely on themselves to be faithful and to keep the church uh, undivided in the truth. So Paul committed or entrusted them to God and his word of what? Grace. He committed the church and the leadership and entrusted them to God and his word of grace. The two parts of this phrase probably represent one concept. They were entrusted to God who is active in the word of grace. God and the gospel cannot be divided. Since he uses the gospel to save those who believe, both Jews and Gentiles, it is the power of God unto salvation. There is no power if Paul had simply said, here's a manual on how to do church, and here are 97 rules how to never fall into heresy, learn them, obey them, and do what is right. We wouldn't have a church at all at Ephesus. But he commended them to the power. Grace is power. It is the power of God in the gospel. And so it's powerful enough to build you up, that is, build you up, edify you, and give you an, an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Three important Pauline terms are found in this claim. 
Through the teaching of the gospel, God is building his church. By means of the gospel, God promises an eternal inheritance to those who trust in Christ and enables them to obtain that inheritance. And in the gospel, God declares those who are in Christ to be already sanctified, a perfect passive participle indicating that it is a present reality that has been granted unto them. Which tells me what? Already I am sanctified. I am already holy. Already set apart. I am realizing it in the present uh, of, of the covenant and kingdom which is already but not yet and one day I will realize it ultimately. And completely that I am holy. I am so thankful in my more spiritual moments that one day I will be holy. I think that will be the greatest thing any of us will ever know is true holiness. I've told you before I had a warped concept of holiness as a child growing up because I had some relatives who uh, were different. They went to Nazarene, Pentecostal, one something, I forget the name, is 46 names in the church. But uh, the woman always wore a bun, absolutely no makeup. The only thing about the husband I could tell that uh, was different was he always wore a hat, and he didn't shave a lot, he, he always had a beard. And I noticed that she did not shave her legs. And so I'm sitting there looking at these people, and I look over at my father, and he knows I'm about to say something. He goes, no, 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 don't do that. And so we get out in the car, and I'm busting it. Man, I have to ask the question, what's up with these people? I mean, this is my grandmother's brother. I said, who, why do they look like that? Why do they dress like that? Why do they act like that? My dad said, well, they're holiness people. Well, that's what I thought holiness was. That was not something I ever wanted. I did not want to be married to a woman who looked like that. I did not. And I did not marry a woman who looked like that. Holiness, if I had to give you the best word I could, holiness is beauty. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It is breathtaking. And one day, we will be holy. And so Paul commends and commits the church to and entrusts them to the word of his grace. Grace has the power to take sinful people like us and ultimately make us beautiful. This is the God-given word, which is the theology of the gospel that Luke uses both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. And it is when it's faithfully preached and applied to believers, they are assured of their standing in Christ and God. You need to understand something about the salvation we already have through grace. The salvation we already have through, through grace cannot be forfeited. It cannot be lost. We're not waiting on the jury to come in on Judgment Day. As a matter of fact, our Judgment Day has already happened. What do you mean, Pastor? When Christ went to the cross and died for my sin, and then he was buried, and three days later he gloriously resurrected from the grave, the Bible tells me he was delivered up for my transgression and raised again for my justification. Court is over. I've been declared forever to be under his favor and righteous forever. 
Do you know that about yourselves? You don't have to walk around in gloom and doom doubting whether you're going to make it or whether you're going to be okay. The only reason you'll ever get there anyway is the grace of God and what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Sometimes we just need to take a big breath and release it. We've been gloriously saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to the danger of false teaching and persecution, Paul recognized the possibility that the elders might misuse their position for personal gain. And so he gives his own example here as an encouragement to them, introducing an aspect of his ministry not mentioned in preceding verses. Paul's attitude towards money and possessions reflected the influence of the teaching of Jesus. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. With this disclosure, we see how his humble disinterest in silver-based wealth set him apart from the Egyptian false teachers, or excuse me, the Ephesian magicians and shrine makers. Paul was always being dogged by the rock stars of his generation. And the rock stars of Paul's generation were public speakers, speech makers, philosophers, uh, magicians, charlatans, whatever you want to call them. And they would gather a big crowd and they would dress lavishly and everything about them was lavish. And all they talked about was money, like a lot of uh, what I call the professional wrestlers of Christianity, TV evangelists. That's what you got. So you've got to be careful what you watch. But here's the thing. Paul says, uh-uh. You can you read 2 Corinthians and you'll see how much these people dogged him constantly. Said he wasn't worthy or fit, 1 Corinthians as well. It set him apart from itinerant philosophers and religious charlatans who made money out of their teaching. And he even quotes a saying of Jesus that's nowhere in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And it doesn't mean that those who benefit from the generosity of others are less blessed than those who give. The principle is rather, it is better for a person who can do so to give help to others rather than amass further wealth for himself or herself. Paul's own behavior then is presented as a practical example how to put this into practice. And so, but Paul later on encouraged in his epistles the church to pay the, uh, the minister. Uh, that's later on in the New Testament, but he himself did not do that because of the context he was in and the danger of being equivocated with the charlatans. Enough of that. His aim here is to warn leaders to the dangers inherent in their position and to commend his own solution to the problem of greed. Covetousness spoils relationship and hinders the work of the gospel since those who are seeking to advance themselves will be tempted to evaluate their contacts and ministry opportunities in economic terms and so Paul's way of handling this matter was handed over to the leaders at Ephesus and so when Paul had finished speaking the text tells us he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And in response, they wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. Paul's relationship with the Ephesian elders was one of genuine affection and friendship. 
and parting for him was distressing enough. But what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Similar departure scenes show a surprising depth of relationship with Christians in Tyre and Caesarea, where he had spent the same uh, he had not spent the same length of time as he did in Ephesus. And so this bonding, this relationship that Paul had with the leadership of the church in Ephesus is a beautiful picture of what ought to be. And I am thankful again for the elders at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. Certainly not perfect man, and I'm certainly not a perfect man, but there is love and a bond which we should be jealous of because often division strikes there before it strikes anywhere else. And so Paul is sometimes misrepresented by his critics as a hard and austere man lacking compassion, lack, uh, lacking compassion and kindness. Well, Paul might have lacked compassion when he was Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church, but this man went to the greatest training and testing and suffering to learn compassion. By the way, nobody in this room has the natural gift of compassion. Compassion is a work of the Lord. It is the gentleness which, in my opinion, is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the, it is the being brokenhearted over what breaks the heart of our Savior. But compassion is a crash course in pain. And one of the ways we gain compassion is by going through stuff. For example, you see someone in a bad spot. You look at a family, and maybe the kids have rebelled, and maybe uh, the wife and the husband aren't doing well in their relationship, and it's easy to stand on our sanctimonious platform and judge people. But let it happen to you. Let it happen to you. Watch it happen to you. And then you'll get a crash course in compassion. And you and I will be a lot slower to judge people. And a lot quicker to go and come alongside and encourage. Thank God we have many people in this body who do that. When we mess up, we don't have people running away. We have people running too to try to encourage and lift up. And I know who you are. Because I watch you and I see you. But this is a beautiful, beautiful text in which Paul talks about the inner workings of the church. And this passage is one of several that, that challenges the idea that Paul was a hard and austere man. Then they accompanied to his ship for the journey that would take him to imprisonment and many trials before he finally reaches Rome where he meets his end. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts today. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. There's so much here, so much here, so much here for every person in this room. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see where we need to apply this text to our own hearts. Maybe some of us have been slack 
in taking care of our own soul. Maybe we don't read the Bible like we used to. Or maybe we don't pray. Or maybe we've sort of become depressed and isolated from other people and don't want to connect and become part of the body. Or maybe we're angry or, or resentful about things that have happened to us. We pray today that you would work repentance in us and bring us back to the Savior to receive Grace upon grace upon grace. And would that grace make us gracious for Jesus' sake. Amen.